Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we better have a few moments of uh, silent prayer to make sure everybody's in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of the word and get all the cobwebs cleared out from all the distractions of the day today and the day tomorrow and what's coming up next weekend and all the other stuff so we can focus on the word. Let's pray. Father, your word always refreshes us like streams in the desert. It always provides us with absolute truth. It always challenges us to put our focus back on you and get it off of the details of our lives, the troubles, the traumas, the just all the little distractions, the details that get us all uh, wrapped around the axle and small, little insignificant issues to get back on the fact that it's, it's all about your plan. It's all about uh, learning how to live the Christian life. It's all about implementation of all the things that we learn from your word that we may grow spiritually, and that God the Holy Spirit can move us to spiritual maturity. Now as we study these things, we pray that we may be encouraged by the, uh, uh, the, the trustworthiness of your word as we examine these prophecies in Genesis 49, and that as we see your hand working down through history, we may be reminded that despite whatever chaos and uncertainty uh, goes on in our world, that you are just as much in control today as you have been down through the centuries. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 49. Genesis 49, and this is one of those great prophecy passages in the Bible, a lengthy passage where Jacob, as he pronounces his parting blessing just before he dies, his parting blessing on his twelve sons, he opens the door to the future, and he is knowledgeable enough on the character qualities of his sons that he not only sees the faults and failures and flaws that they currently demonstrate, but sees how particular flaws and faults also indicate uh, certain trends, certain character trends that will dominate their descendants uh, down through uh, future generations. Last time we looked at the uh, first four verses, which focused on 
Reuben. Reuben is the oldest. As we began our study, we saw that these first four, Reuben, then Levi and Simeon, taken as a pair, and then Judah, are the four sons, the first four born to Jacob and Leah. So they are all brothers, true brothers, full brothers, same father, same mother. Uh, They are in this particular birth order. We saw that Reuben was first born. He had the double blessing. He was to be the leader. He was the one who was in the position of leadership, the position of blessing, the position of inheritance, yet he forfeited because of his character. Character is important because he was unstable. Only doctrine gives us stability. He rejected any relationship with the Lord, and as a result of that, he became unstable. Verse 4, uncontrolled is water. Self-discipline, incidentally, self-mastery actually is the best translation for one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That as we grow and mature, the God the Holy Spirit is training us in self-mastery, that we can control our sin nature, control our uh, lust patterns, control our emotions, control uh, our wrong desire so that we can uh, implement the Word of God. In contrast to that, we have Reuben who was uncontrolled and so uncontrolled that he seduced Bilhah, his father's concubine, and for some uh, 25 years or so, Jacob has kept that quiet for probably longer than that, uh, probably about 40 years he's kept that quiet. And now he is bringing it up to show that past failures have consequences, unforeseen consequences that may not crop up for several decades. In verse 5, we get to the next prophecy. This relates to Simeon and Levi. They're going to be uh, paired together. And apparently, they were close. They were closer than normal brothers. And even though the sentence begins, Simeon and Levi are brothers. There's an Simeon and Judah are brothers. Simeon and Reuben are brothers. Levi and uh, Reuben are brothers. So there's more to that statement than just the surface meaning. It indicates that there was a closeness, a, a partnership, a friendship, a compatibility uh, between these two that made them not only partners, but partners in crime as it uh, comes out. So we read in this uh, prophecy related to these two men and the tribes that will come from them. Jacob says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger... They slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So verses 5, 6 give us their background, and verse 7 relates to their future destiny. Now when we... I'm going to go ahead and skip this. I just wanted to put this map in here and find out where it was so that we could keep referring back to it as we go through our class. First of all, verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. So we'll take Simeon first of all. Simeon was the second son born to Jacob and Leah. 
The name in Hebrew is Shimon, and it's related for the word to hear. Leah gave him this name because she expresses a particular hope at birth in Genesis 29.33. I don't have that up there. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I was hated. See, each of the names for these sons has something to do with helping us understand Jacob's uh, relationship to Leah. So she believes that she is hated, disliked, she is shunned by Jacob. And so because uh, she, she gives, she becomes pregnant the second time, she uh, says it's from the Lord because the Lord heard that she was hated. He heard her. So he, she calls him Simeon. Now, the, as I pointed out already, the description of this, these brothers, these two as brothers, is odd considering the first four are all brothers, so that emphasizes something special in their relationship. In terms of their sin natures, they seem to have uh, sympathetic sin natures. They were similar in personality. They had the same uh, areas of weakness, the same trends, the same lust patterns, and so they were often uh, conspiring together. And that that's, comes out in verse 6, when Jacob said, let not my soul enter their counsel. They're always, these two boys were probably always off from the others, hatching some plot, coming up with some scheme to do something. And it wasn't good. As they got older and as their sin natures were more and more uncontrolled, it became uh, worse and worse. They had trends in their sin nature towards anger, towards hatred, vindictiveness, and cruelty. They enjoyed inflicting pain and misery on others. They're motivated, as we see in the text, by a deep-seated anger. Now, as we look at the text here, we need to do a little bit in terms of just understanding the basic uh, basic Hebrew that is here, the word for dwelling place is a word, uh, uh, makara, indicates a type of weapon in one Hebrew dictionary, more recent uh, Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, which has a higher value than BDB. BDB came out in 1918 and it's been the standard Hebrew lexicon until uh, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon came out in the late 90s. What's interesting, all these little side notes are I always find interesting about Bible translation. When I was in seminary, I took a course on word study in Hebrew, which was a very illuminating course. And one of the things that we learned in that course was things about the nature of different uh, English translations. And what hap- one of the things that we learned was that the New American Standard Bible and the Old Testament translation which was done in the late 60s, just took at face value whatever meaning uh, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, that's what the BDB stands for, it's the three editors of the lexicon, whatever they said the word meant, that's what New American Standard assigned to it for a meaning. The problem with that is that between 1918 or 1919 when BDB came out, in 1967, 68, 69, you have 50 years of scholarship, discovery of various archaeological uh, uh, things that would affect our understanding of the language and the meaning of the words. 
And so, as you can see, in the New American Standard, translates this uh, one way, and Hal indicates a, that it has a completely different, uh, different meaning. Um, so we get into some translation issues here. I also have another word that's there for translated instruments, which is the Hebrew word kali, which is an article, a vessel, an instrument, or a piece of equipment. And then the word cruelty is the Hebrew word hamas. It does not, is not related to the terrorist organization today known as Hamas. Somewhere recently, rattling around the back of my head because it wasn't noteworthy enough to pay attention to it, was I read this as a as an example or heard this as an example somewhere of of a of a, just how word studies shouldn't be done. That there was some pastor or somebody who made this connection. See, Hamas means Hamas means violence or cruel injustice, and that's the ter- present terrorist organization. Whereas the the terrorist organization's name comes from some acronym. I don't know what it is, but these are unrelated words. And yet you often have people uh, do sort of what I call Rorschach exegesis. You know what a Rorschach test is. That's the inkblot test. And you know the psychiatrist gives you this inkblot and says, okay, what does that look like? It looks like a butterfly. It looks like a dragon, whatever it is. Well, there's a lot of pastors, I think, do Rorschach exegesis. They see a word, they think, hmm, that reminds me of this word over in this passage, reminds me of that doctrine, and off they go, running down some rabbit trail that has nothing to do with the meaning of the passage uh, passage itself. What this phrase means, we take one of two different takes on the translation one would be the idea that their weapons are instruments of cruelty. The other translation, taking the uh, Hal idea that the first word there, uh, mekara, means uh, plans, that their plans are instruments of violence. Either way... I think the latter is probably the more correct one, but either way we get the idea that what Jacob is saying is these are some boys and men who love violence and cruelty, and they are devising plans and ideas in order to uh, be, to carry out their desire for violence and cruelty. So the picture is that these two are like-minded partners in violence, which is most clearly seen back in Genesis chapter 34, verses 25 to 30. Now, that's the episode of, of Shechem. And some people will come along and say, well, why in the world would God tell us about this weird little episode in Shechem that has to do with the uh, rape of Dinah and the vengeance of Levi and Simeon? And this, of course, if you remember, is the story where uh, Shechem was the prince of Shechem, the, the town. He, he was His father was the uh, prince or leader of Shechem. And so uh, Shechem, the son, is infatuated with Dinah. He rapes her. Then he tries to make things right, and they'll get together and get married. 
And in the process, the brothers, specifically uh, Simeon and Levi, devise a little plan where they are going to wreak vengeance on them. They say, okay, well, you can marry our sister, but our sister can't marry anybody who's uncircumcised, so everybody in the village has to become circumcised. And so after they have circumcised everybody on the third day, and I understand it's always the third day after surgery that's where it's the most painful, on the third day after this, this group surgery, they come in and they kill all the men because the men are in so much pain that they're not able to defend themselves. And so they just come in and massacre everyone. And this makes uh, Jacob extremely unhappy. In verse 30, he says to uh, Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. They've operated and acted in a worse manner than even the pagan Canaanites operated. Here you have two men who are believers. And it just goes to show that believers can operate and carry out sin that is worse than any unbeliever. Now, there's a lot of lordship people who have a problem with that. And they would say that, well, you can't really say that they're believers because no believer would, by definition, act like that. But that's because they have such a... Uh, shallow view of the evil of the sin nature. But this is the background for this particular statement, is that they had acted so uh, wickedly, they had conspired against the inhabitants of Shechem and had carried out this particular activity in an attempt to annihilate uh, the entire entire village. In verse 6, of chapter 49, Jacob says, Let not my soul enter their counsel. Now, this is a, a, a verb expressing his desire, his wish, that he does not want to be involved in their plans. He doesn't want to be involved in their counsel. The word there in the Hebrew for counsel is this word sowed, meaning counsel, that is getting together and talking and planning and plotting. Or it can also mean counsel in terms of giving advice or plans or ideas to someone else. So it's a little bit of a a double entendre there. The core idea of the word has to do with confidence, keeping something in confidence, secretive, uh, conspiratorial planning, involving intimacy. And Jacob doesn't want to have any part in their plans or their conspiracies. So he says, let not my soul enter their counsel, let not my honor be united to their assembly. I don't care what value they may uh, achieve, whatever good may come of whatever it is they do, I don't want to have anything to do with them because they are at core, at their very core, cruel, evil, hateful men. And so he distances himself from them and then in their... Uh, and he gives an explanation in the third line, for in their anger they slew a man. Literally, this is uh, mankind. It can be a collective noun, a singular involving a group of men talking about the slaughter at Shechem. And he concludes by saying, in their self-will, so they're angry, they're self-willed, they they just run amok. In their self-will, they hamstrung, they hamstrung, an ox. Now, if you look at, if you have a King James Bible, it reads a little differently. And there's, your King James will translate it badly. 
And in their self-will, they digged down a wall. That's not what the Hebrew says. Hebrew says, in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. The New King James gets it right, and so does the New American Standard. And it refers to the fact that not only did they kill all the men in Shechem, but then they uh, uh, rustled, as we say in Texas, rustled all of their cattle, and then they hamstrung them so they would be useless to them. In other words, their whole goal was simply to destroy the town, to destroy everything, to destroy the men, destroy their wealth, and uh, render the entire uh, town incapacitated. In verse 7, Jacob says, Cursed be their anger. And there's about four different words for curse in Hebrew, and this is the strongest one. This is the same word we have in Genesis chapter 3 relating to God's judgment, the curse on sin. It's the same, the second word for curse that we have in Genesis 1 3, that, that those where, where God says to Abraham, Those who curse you, I will also curse. Well, the first word there means to treat lightly or inappropriately. It's a rather superficial idea to that word, that if you just treat someone with a measure of disrespect, then I will aurora, I will curse you harshly. So that's the idea here. It's the worst form of cursing indicating judgment or divine discipline. And that's the idea behind cursing in the Bible. It's not cussing, and it's not... Uh, putting some kind of juju black magic curse on somebody, okay, where you just cast a spell on them. It has the idea of, of expressing the consequences of divine judgment or calling upon God to bring a judgment upon someone. So what Jacob is basically doing here is he's operating on the principle of vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He understands that principle. He's calling upon the Supreme Court of Heaven to bring about the proper judgment and discipline upon his two sons because of their uh, harsh anger. So they are to be judged. He's calling upon God to judge them for their anger. Incidentally, that verse that I just quoted, which comes out of Romans 12, and it's also a quote from a passage in the New Old Testament I don't remember, it says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is really also a bad translation. Because when most of us think about vengeance, we think about personal vindic- vindictiveness, the carrying out of vendetta. And the idea in the Hebrew of that word is the idea of the execution of justice. It's not personal vengeance. When God says, vengeance is mine, he's not some petty little tyrant up there who's going to carry out vengeance on people who did the wrong thing. It is a word that in a number of contexts indicates the execution of justice and judgment upon, upon its object. Cursed be their anger. Just another little note here. On the Hebrew, the word for anger is an, uh, is an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism, remember, is a figure of speech where a physical attribute of man is applied to God. But God doesn't actually possess that physical attribute, but it's used to, it's used to indicate something about God's plans, purposes, and policies. Okay, so the word off is literally the word knows. So that's an anthropomorphism. 
But it's also an anthropopathism. I just love this. It's also an anthropopathism because the way that the Jews would express somebody being angry is they would say their nose burned. Like you get all red in the face. Well, they would say, well, their nose burned. Well, God doesn't have a nose to burn, number one, which makes it an anthropomorphism. And that means also he doesn't get uh, lose his temper and get angry emotionally either. So it's also an anthropopathism where human emotions are used to express uh, certain uh, attributes of God, certain of his actions and policies in, in terms of a human frame of reference so we can understand it better. And it's, we, it's often used of God's, the execution of God's judgment. When you go to court, you want a judge that is objective and unemotional. But sometimes people have the um, uh, harshest penalty given them for breaking the law. And so we have a little saying that so-and-so threw the book at me. Well, that does not mean that the judge lost his temper and stood up and threw some book at you. But it expresses the idea of the harshness of the degree of punishment that was given. It's just a figure of speech. And so people come along and, and have problems with these things when they relate to God. But it's very simple. This is just a, a figure of speech related to the uh, two men that they often lost their temper and they were often angry and it led to all kinds of actions, hatred, other, other mental attitude sins as well as overt sins. So God calls upon, I mean, uh, Jacob calls upon God to judge them for their anger because it is fierce and their wrath. Notice the parallelism in the poetry there and their wrath for it is cruel. So their anger, their wrath, their hostility is characterized as fierce and cruel. And then the consequences are given in the second part of the verse I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, the thrust of this is that neither of these tribes would have their own inheritance or their own possession in the land. Now, let me go back here to where I had a uh, had that map, and we'll look at this. Now, if we look below, now this map really isn't a, an accurate map. I pulled this from what we used last week, but that's inaccurate because it shows Simeon as a large piece of real estate to the south of Judah. Actually, all of that territory uh, down to Beersheba down here. Here's Beersheba here. All this territory, all the way down into the Negev, was all part of Judah's territory. Simeon was only given a small amount of territory within Judah, and within a few generations, he had become a, uh, Simeon's descendants were just assimilated into Judah, and his tribal identity was uh, almost completely lost. This is the point that we see as we study through the the um, as we study through the, the text. Now, the next place that we want to go to find out something about. Uh, Simeon and Levi is in the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, in Numbers 123, the adult male population 
of Simeon is recorded as 59,300. Now remember, the book of Numbers is called Numbers because they counted people twice. The Greek word is arithmoi, and that was the title for the book of Numbers in the Septuagint, because they had two censuses. They had one at the beginning where they were counting how many males over the age of 20 were available for the, for the army, for the military, and that involved the Exodus generation. Then at the end of the book of Numbers, after the Exodus generation had all died off after their discipline in the wilderness, then they had a second uh, census taken to see how large the army was, the, 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 or the pool of adult males uh, were from the age of 20 and above as they were about to enter the land under Joshua. So you have these two numberings that take place in the book of Numbers. So in the first account, which is the uh, group that comes out of Egypt. This is the group that is the uh, uh, Exodus generation. They had 59,300 men in the tribe of Simeon. It is reduced to 22,200 from 59,300 to 22,000. That's 37,000 are lost in the period of the uh, wilderness wanderings. Think about that. Of all the Jews that were lost during the wilderness wanderings, the tribe that had the, took the biggest hit was Simeon because of their uh, disobedience and is a fulfillment of this prophecy of, of Jacob's. Uh, part of this was due to the fact that Simeon was deeply involved in the idolatry of Baal Peor, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. That's the story of when... Um, uh, Balak, the king of, um, who was it, ba- Balak called for Balaam, the uh, prophet, to come over and to curse the Israelites, the king of Moab. And the, Balaam came over to curse the uh, Jews, and he, God wouldn't allow him to do it. And he was so stubborn and so persistent that finally the angel of the Lord appeared before Balaam while he's riding his donkey along the uh, uh, one of the ca- uh, canyons there and the donkey couldn't turn left or right and the donkey is uh, scared to death because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and Balaam starts beating him and, and uh, the, the, then the donkey talks to him and says, why are, why are you being so unjust to me? And it's this great confrontation uh, that God uses the animal to confront uh, Balaam. And it's not some sort of magical thing or animation. It is simply showing the cruelty that Balaam had toward this undeserving animal, which was parallel to the fact that he wanted to uh, curse an undeserving people simply because of his uh, just his own hostility. So anyway, when when he couldn't curse the people, he told uh, Balak, he said, if you really want to mess up the Jews, here's what you do. You just get all your good-looking young women out, and they will entice the young men, and they'll all get married, and they'll entice them into idolatry. And the next thing you know, they're just they're, you will destroy them from the inside out. And that's what uh, Balak tried to do. And God brought judgment against them, and 24,000 Jews are killed in that disciplinary action. And the vast majority of them must have come from the uh, Simeonites, there's only one Israelite listed by name in that episode, and that was Zimri, who was of the tribe of Simeon. So obviously that affected that tribe more than any others. They easily succumbed to idolatry. During the time of the conquest, 
Simeon's portion is described in the 19th chapter of Joshua. The 19th chapter of Joshua. Uh, starting in about Joshua 15, 14, we have basically uh, real, real estate uh, plat descriptions. It's real exciting stuff. Because what it does is God gives the boundaries for every tribe in the land. And it's just not real exciting, but it is very important to understand a lot of things that come later on in, in the Old Testament. And Simeon's portion is described in Joshua chapter 19 in the first nine verses. And there we're told the second lot fell to Simeon to the tribe of the sons of Simeon according to their families. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. So that map that I showed you was wrong. Joshua 19, it's in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. So they had as their inheritance, Beersheba and Sheba and Moladon. It goes ahead and lists all the very various villages that are part of their inheritance. And then in verse 9 we read, The inheritance of the sons of Simeon, was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. Judah had the largest uh, inheritance. So the sons of Judah received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. That's in, in verse 9. So they become uh, their inheritance of various cities in the midst of, of, uh, of Judah, and then they become assimilated. Now, we go through time a little more. That's during the time of the conquest, which is about 1400 to 1350. Now we're going to jump ahead about 400 years to the time of the divided kingdom, which started around 930, 940 B.C. And it's difficult to know exactly what happened to Simeon during that period under the United Kingdom and the early part of the divided kingdom because nothing is said about about them. Also, because there were various Israelites, very Jews, that were migrating from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, and they were they were moving around. So we just have a few little hints in in Scripture. For example, in Second Chronicles eleven sixteen, we read that after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So this is talking about believers from the northern kingdom who moved down to the southern kingdom because they realized the northern kingdom was apostate and out of the will of God. So there's a lot of, of movement taking place. Then later during the reign of Hezekiah, we're down to about the 7th century B.C., there was a large group of Simeonites who migrated farther south. They're leaving the land now. They're going into the land of Edom uh, where they conquered and displaced the Amalekites who dwelt there. And this is described, and I'm not going to go through these verses, in First Chronicles 4, 4 chapter, uh, verses 38 to 43. Now, one of the things that's interesting, if you do a study on Edom, and it's either in Isaiah or Ezekiel, Edom, Edom is defined as the land going from what is currently Jordan, what we would call up near uh, biblical period Moab, and the southern part, coming around the southern part of, of Judah, all the way down to Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan would be on the uh, Persian Gulf coast 
of Saudi Arabia. So the term Edom isn't restricted biblically to just the area to the immediate south of Judah, but it would include all of the area down into what is now Saudi Arabia and also include all of those uh, kingdoms, Qatar and uh, the Arab Emirates and uh, all of those places or it would all be under the biblical designation of Edom. Just file that away sometime when we start getting into the movements of the various uh, peoples during the tribulation and the armies, that's going to come back to be very, uh, very important. And, of course, those are all currently Islamic countries. They're all under Muslim control, and I think that's something important uh, to pay attention to. There are also some references in Second Chronicles 15.9 and Second Chronicles 34.6 that some, that some groups of the uh, Simeonites migrated to the north, so they're just sort of scattering and melting into various parts of the uh, of the kingdom. Now let's go ahead to uh, the next one, which is Levi. Levi, has a, there, there's a similar type announcement. Levi's not going to get an inheritance in the land. But what we saw with Simeon is going to change with Levi. Simeon, it's all negative. There's nothing about Simeon that's positive later on. There's no leaders that come from Simeon. There's no prophets that come from Simeon. There's nothing valuable, much like the tribe of Reuben. There is a mention of Simeon, though, in the future, which always speaks of God's grace, that despite past failures, we can always have a future in God's plan because of his, his grace. Now, we see this gracious aspect of God enter into the prophecy of Levi because Levi, like Simeon, it was prophesied that he would be scattered and be divided among the tribes of Israel. That's a negative thing for Simeon, but it becomes a positive thing for Levi. Levi was the third son born to Jacob and Leah. The name Levi means attached or joined. And this was a pun based on Leah's feelings of rejection by Jacob. See how that keeps cropping up? She felt like he hated him before, so when God hears her prayers, she names uh, her second son, uh, Simeon. And now because uh, she, she has a third son, she thinks, well, maybe he's going to love me now and he will become attached to me. So she names the third son uh, Levi, and you will hear that name sometimes as Levi, L-E-V-Y. I grew up over in um, over in Meyerland, and I went to high school with, uh, and grew up with a lot of, of, of Jews, and there must have been several that all had a last name related to this priestly tribe, Cohens and Cohans and Le- Levies and Levies and and uh, that all comes, they all come from that, that particular tribe. And there, there is a gene that's been marked as the Levitical gene so that they can identify the priestly tribe. And all of this goes back to this particular son. Now, the story of his birth is given in Genesis twenty nine thirty four. She conceived again, bore a son, and said, Now this time will my husband become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, was his name called Levi. Now, originally, they weren't priests. 
Remember from the time of there's just Levi, who's this angry, cruel partner to Simeon, from then up to the time of the giving of the Mosaic Law with Moses in about 1446 B.C., there are no priests. It was the giving of the Mosaic Law that established a priestly tribe. That's when a change takes place. In Numbers 18.19, God is talking to, uh, to the Levites, and he refers to the fact that he has established this covenant with Levi. It's not another covenant. It is part of the Mosaic covenant, the, the contractual relationship between God and the tribe of Levi, Levi as the priestly tribe. Numbers 18.20 we read, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. See, this is the fulfillment of that uh, prophecy by Jacob. He would have no ownership in the land, no inheritance in the land. But wait a minute. Simeon was a bad thing, and Simeon and Levi weren't exactly altar boys here. And now when we get down here to Numbers 18, there this is a blessing, isn't it, that God is going to be their portion? What's happened? God is going to be their inheritance. That sounds like a positive thing. So what caused the change here? Well, the change, of, the change occurred because there is an example of true, genuine repentance. The word isn't used there, but it shows this true, genuine repentance in the character of the tribe. And this is seen in the event of the golden calf incident and the tribe of Levi's response in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, the people got bored. And before long, they wanted to party, and they called upon Aaron to take uh, all the gold and build him an idol. And so he was apparently quite the craftsman and he collected all their gold, silver, and the jewels that they'd brought out from the Egyptians, and he crafted a golden calf that was that he called this is a first one of the first examples of historical revisionism. He pointed to the calf and he said, This is the God who brought you out of uh, out of Egypt. So recognition that um, if you want to control the people you just uh, attribute uh, false things to false gods. So you have the sin of the people with the golden calf. And when Moses came down, Moses uh, confronted him. And I always thought this is just one of those humorous things. Uh, Moses came down and said, Aaron, what have you done? And Aaron said, gee, I don't know. I just kind of tossed the gold in the fire. I'll pop this golden idol. Who knew? It's not my fault. So... There is a divine response of judgment, though, on those who had gone into uh, the idolatry. And so beginning in verse 25, we read, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Okay, who's going to stick up for truth and righteousness and the integrity of the Lord. And guess who comes forward? The Levites. 
All the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Not some of them, all of them. The Levites are oriented to doctrine and to grace at this particular point. This is genuine change in the character of the tribe. And so in verse 27, Moses said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So the Levites were the tribe that aligned themselves uh, with God and carried out this divine discipline. As a result of that, when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 33, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 8 through 11, Moses confers a blessing on the tribe of Levi. They have moved from cursing to blessing because of their orientation uh, to, to the grace of God. And in Deuteronomy 33, 8 to 11, we read, And of Levi, he said, Let thy thumim and thy urim, these were stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest that were used for divine guidance, let thy thumim and thy urim belong to thy godly man which would be the high priest, whom thou didst prove at Massa, whom thou didst contend at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. He did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed thy word and kept thy covenant. They shall teach thine ordinances to Jacob. This is the blessing, that the Levites will teach doctrine to the Jews. And they shall put incense before thee and hold burnt offerings on thy altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands, shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they may not rise again. So the point is that there would be a future blessing for the Levites. Then when we come to the end of the Old Testament, there is again additional blessing toward the Levites. In Malachi 2 verse 4 we're told, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi, which was embedded in the Mosaic Covenant, may continue. So that will continue. God goes on to say in Malachi 2.5, My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. Then we skip over to Malachi 3.3 and we read, he will sit as a, he, meaning God, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. This happens at the second coming. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years." Now, we have a dispensational break that takes place with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And then the beginning of the church age, and then the church age ends with the tribulation. Jesus Christ returns. There's this purging of Levi, and then there is one final blessing uh, for uh, for Levi, and that is that at the, in the millennial t- kingdom, the Levitical priests who are descendants from Zadok, the Zadokite priests, will serve as 
the priesthood in the millennial temple. And wonder how you would identify someone who is a descendant from Zadok. Y'all are from Houston. Y'all know the answer to this. Y'all don't know where Zadok Jewelers is down on South Post Oak? Where do you think they came from? They're part of that Zadokite line. You can bet on it. Those names continue. And it's interesting that um, that the Jews know who many of the Levites were. This has been handed down in oral tradition. And I'm, I understand from uh, my readings and studies that in many of the synagogues down through the centuries that it, they knew who were who was president of the synagogue, who was a member of the synagogue, that was a descendant of the priestly line, they would be given special privileges and responsibilities within the synagogue so that those responsibilities, those spiritual responsibilities that related to their Levitical heritage often continued uh, down through the centuries. And there will be a special future for them in Ezekiel 45.15 uh, God indicates that it is the Zadokites that will offer the offerings in the millennial temple because Zadok, who was a, a priest under David, was loyal to David, whereas uh, the other priests were not. Therefore, he uh, receives that special honor in the millennial kingdom. Okay, now that brings us down to our next Brother, we won't get through everything with him. Genesis 49, 8 through 12 is the, is one of the two longest blessings in this section. One for Judah and the other one for Joseph. In Judah 49, 8 through 12 we read, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children shall bow down before you. Obvious reference to uh, ruling authority. Genesis 49.9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The idea of eternal kingship, which of course is played out in the Davidic line ending up in the Messiah. Nor a lawgiver law from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So when we begin to analyze this passage, back up to the first verse, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. There is a pun here, a play on words. The Holy Spirit is quite fond of puns in the Old Testament. And the name Judah, Yada, we've studied before, is a word that frequently means to declare praise to God. And one of its forms, it's Toda, and it's the Toda psalms, uh, expressions used in the Psalms often for, for praise. So Judah, when Judah was born... In uh, Genesis 29:34, Leah said Leah had conceived again and bore a son, and said, "Now I will praise the Lord." Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. She's going to have two more later on, but for the, that, that time period, that was the last son she had in 
in a row. So the first thing that is stated here by Jacob is, You are he whom your brothers show praise. They focus on him. He's a leader. We've seen that transition that took place in Judah's life. He started off, he was... uh, he, he left the family, he married a Canaanite wife, he had sons who were taken out under divine discipline, he has, an, uh, unbeknownst to him, he has an affair with his daughter-in-law who's disguised as a prostitute. I mean, he's just pretty much a, assimilated into Canaanite culture, but that event was used by God to get his attention and to turn him around, and his life changed after that, and by the time we got into uh, Judges, I mean Genesis 44, he began to show leadership among the brothers as they go to Egypt looking for aid from Egypt for food for the, to get, make it through the famine. And then when, Ju, uh, when Joseph is testing them in relationship to Benjamin, Judah always stepped forward. He was a spokesperson and he was the one who was um, uh, exercising leadership. Later on, Judah as a tribe is going to be the ones who go first in the order of march through the wilderness. Judah was the first tribe according to the layout in Numbers chapter 10 verse 14. When the Jews enter into the land, Judah will receive the largest allotment in the land of Canaan. According to those census figures given in Numbers chapter 1 and in Numbers 26, Judah also had the largest population of any of the tribes. And so in Judges, uh, Genesis 49.8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. The next line, Judah, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, indicating his military prowess. And Judah went in and was one of the first tribes to gain control of the territory that God had allotted to him as his inheritance. And, of course, down through the next generations, of course, this has played out in terms of their uh, military prowess as they gathered around David, and they were the core of David's army. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children as the other tribes, shall bow down before you. That's an allusion to the fact that the kingship would ultimately reside in Judah. The first king was Saul, the first king that was uh, uh, anointed by God was Saul. You remember there was another king before that? Just a little trivia. That was Abimelech, the son of Gideon. He was crowned king by those uh, people in Shechem. God didn't recognize him, but that's not the question. The question is, who was anointed first king of Israel? So Saul is the actually the first king God anointed over Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a failure spiritually and in terms of his political leadership. So God gave the crown to David. And from Dave, that point on, the kingship in the southern kingdom was always a descendant of David until uh, 586 when the uh, nation went out under divine discipline. Second Samuel 22:41, David said, You have also, referring to God, you have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I didn't get the whole verse, didn't copy in. 
You have given me the necks of my enemies as a reference to the fulfillment of this particular prophecy, that your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the land of, controlled by Judah, later became known as Judea. And those who lived there had a name that was shortened to Jews. And so whenever we refer to Israelites or Hebrews today, we always refer to them by a name that derives from this particular tribe. They're referred to as Jews. Now verse 9 is going to talk about the uh, Lion of Judah, and so we will wait and get into those references uh, next time when we come back. So we'll stop here at 49.9. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be uh, encouraged and strengthened by the fact that you have a plan and that plan works its way out in history. You are a God unlike all other gods of, uh, that mankind invents because you are a God who can accurately foretell the future. This sets you apart from all these other gods and goddesses that people have invented. Now, Father, we pray that our, our focus will be on you and that we will be reminded that Bible doctrine is true because it's your truth. And it is your truth that will set us free. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.